please turn in a copy of the scriptures, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. John chapter 10. Now, I want to show you, before we get into the text for today, I want to give you a little bit of a review of what's going on in John's Gospel. So there's a picture um, that's pretty cool that shows the whole... um, Oh, Josh is actually getting stuff, so he can't swipe my slides right now. That's funny. There it is. All right. Uh, So here's a picture that shows the whole overview of the book of John. I know it's kind of overwhelming. It's a whole lot on the screen. You don't have to know all of that right now. Um, But you can see it's kind of divided into sections. There's chapter 1 the introduction, and then you've got like chapters 2 through 10, etc. So what, what John has been doing is presenting uh, Jesus and stories of Jesus and his signs, his miraculous acts of power that demonstrate his identity uh, to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the promised and long-awaited Christ, the Messiah uh, of the people of God. So uh, on the next slide, we're going to zoom in just a little bit on uh, where we are uh, today and where we've been in the past, uh, really, couple of months um, in the Gospel of John. And so we see Jesus interacting with four key Jewish festivals. And so back in John chapter 5, uh, we saw him heal a lame man on the Sabbath. And so there was a controversy surrounding the Sabbath, and uh, Jesus said, the Father is at work, and so I am at work. And so, that, so we saw Jesus at the Sabbath, and then Jesus at the Passover. That's where he fed this multitude of thousands of people with what amounted to a Lunchable. Uh, and he said, I am the bread of life. So there's this connection between the Passover bread and Jesus as the, the bread of life. Then in chapter 7 through the first part of chapter 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And he uh, presented himself really as the answer to these ceremonies, the, the, the one that fulfilled all of the pictures of these uh, ancient uh, rituals. And so he presented himself as the light of the world, and he presented himself as the source of living water. And so the people of Israel, those who had ears to hear, spiritual ears to hear what he was saying, would have recognized he is putting himself forward as the answer to these uh, traditional Uh, Jewish uh, rites and rituals. And today, we take a turn, and actually the the last half or so of of John chapter 10 uh, shows Jesus engaging uh, with the festival of Hanukkah. It's called the Feast of Dedication in your your copy of the scripture, probably. Um, So the first thing to note is that a couple of months have passed since the drama of the healing of the blind man and uh, his debate with the Pharisees and the religious leaders um, where he began to present himself as the the true shepherd, the good shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of God's people. So a couple of months have probably passed. We're probably in like late November, early December to make a comparison with our calendar. Uh, And so what's going on during the Feast of Dedication, during Hanukkah, is essentially uh, a, a commemorating of the rededication of the, the temple in Jerusalem in 165 BC. So between when the Old Testament was done being written and Jesus showed up on the scene and the New Testament started being written, there was this big thing that you don't necessarily have to understand all the details about, um, but there had been a, a fight over who controlled Jerusalem and who controlled the temple. And so uh, some conservative Jews Uh, rose up and kicked out the bad guys and reclaimed the temple for the people of God and 
rededicated the temple at that time. And so there's a theme about uh, at Hanukkah and in the liturgies and the, the things that they read and recite and pray at Hanukkah, there's a theme of failed leadership and uh, rededicating themselves to God and, uh, and their leaders to God as well. And so Jesus kind of picked up on that theme in the first part of chapter 10 where he was talking, where he called the Pharisees and the religious leaders thieves and robbers and said that the robber comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I, the good shepherd, have come that they would have life and have it abundantly. And so he puts himself forward again as the, the true shepherd of God's people, the true leader. And though a couple of months have passed, he picks up again this theme uh, of himself as the shepherd and the role that he plays in keeping the sheep that God has entrusted to him. So I'd like to read for you verses 22 through 30, and then we'll break it down kind of section by section. So John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we find in this passage and in these words a precious and powerful reminder of the keeping power of Jesus Christ and the security of his sheep, the security of his people now and forever. And we'll find that that security is based not in our own performance, our own religious duty and how well we fulfill those, but it is based on God's sovereign and merciful work in the life of a believer. So the first thing that happens here, we've got the setting. We've talked a little bit about the Feast of Dedication and Hanukkah and what's going on there. So we find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. It says he's, it was winter, and so he was in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, so this was an area of the temple with kind of large porches. They, they're on a, a large porch where maybe there was some shielding, shelter from the wind and, and the cold and things like that. And so Jesus is in this portion of the temple, and the Jews gathered around him. So the first thing that we're going to see here in, in the first few verses of this passage are uh, is basically the petition of unbelief. The petition of unbelief. In other words, what somebody who is not believing, somebody who is antagonistic even toward the claims of Jesus, what they would maybe ask, what kind of questions they would ask. And so we're going to see that going on in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that phrase that the Jews gathered around him, that sounds pretty innocuous and pretty innocent to us, like you would say, come gather around me, children, and let's tell a story together. But the truth is the phrase that is translated as gather around is only used in the New Testament to describe military siege of a city. So like when an army is surrounding a city to attack it, it's the very same phrase that John uses here to say that the Jews gathered around Jesus. Um, So we get the sense that maybe there's a little bit more going on than an innocent curiosity or a sincere desire to know who Jesus is. So they gather around him uh, probably in an antagonistic way um, to perhaps trap him, um, which we find that they try to do over and over. And their petition is, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. How long will you keep us in suspense? And I think they're probably looking for a reason to pounce, if you will. And I think that is uh, backed up by what happens in verse 31, which we're not going to get to today, where the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So recognize they're not exactly trying to feed their faith. They're not like, Jesus, tell us more about who you are so that we can know you. And in fact, this is probably in stark contrast to the man who had been blind that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. Because if you'll look back at John 9, 35, Jesus found the man after he'd healed him and he'd been kicked out of the synagogue. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And his question, the blind man's question was, who is he so that I may believe in him? So he was legitimately wanting to know if are you the son of man? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that I should put my trust in? Just tell me who he is and I will believe. And in fact, Jesus says to him, you have seen him. And so the man immediately says, Lord, I believe. That is a petition of, about Jesus' identity. Who are you? Are you the son of man? Are you the Christ? Right? But it's offered in belief. It's offered in faith and in hope that this really is the Messiah. Jesus really is who he says he is. That's not what we get from these Jewish leaders down in John chapter 10, verse 24, when they gather around, when they surround Jesus, probably with stones in hand, and they say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? I don't think they're looking for an opportunity to worship Jesus. I think they're looking for an opportunity to trap him so that they can do away with him. We need to be careful not to come to Jesus like this. We need to be careful not to come to God as judge and jury placing God on the stand and saying, God, explain yourself. We can be inclined to do that sometimes, I think. God, explain all of this suffering. Explain all of the poverty in the world. Explain the way that I'm hurting right now. What do you have to say for yourself? And sometimes we approach God with this antagonism, as though we are charging God with sin because he has not dealt rightly with us or with the world as we see it. And may we never approach God with that kind of arrogance and that kind of self-centeredness that would say, God, you owe me. I think there's a sense in which the the Jews in this passage are doing that very thing. 
explain yourself. Or maybe you don't have this antagonistic approach to God. Maybe it's not, you know, like, God, explain yourself. But maybe it's more like, Lord, if you would just show me plainly, this would be so much easier. If you would just show up, just walk into the room one time, then I know. I don't have to believe. I don't have to struggle to maintain my faith. Just do something crazy, right, and make yourself obvious, and then this will all be so much easier. Have you ever had a thought like that? And so I think sometimes, though it's not antagonistic, it's still at the heart of that approach to God. God, just tell me. God, just show me. God, just make it obvious. At the heart of that kind of questioning of God is a lack of faith. What we're essentially saying is, God, will you please remove the need for faith? Will you make this so obvious and plain and empirical, something I can touch, see, smell? There's no room for faith. There's no need for faith. I could just know because I've seen it. That is a lack of faith. That is the petition of unbelief. Lord, I don't really believe you. I don't really want to work to keep up my belief in you. So will you just make this so plain and so obvious that I don't have to believe anymore? I'll simply know because I've seen it. But Jesus, believe it or not, says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Those are his words to Thomas later in this gospel after he's risen. And Thomas has said, I won't believe it until I see the wounds and I put my hand in the side where he was pierced. And Jesus shows up and he says, check it out. There's the wounds. Here, put your hand on my side. And Thomas believes, my Lord and my God. And he says, so you have believed because you've seen. But I say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So in Jesus' mind, it's better for us not to see. It's better for us not to have this obvious, plain as day encounter with God where he just walks into our living room and removes all doubt. It's better for us that we have this tension, this wrestling, if you will, with faith and with doubt and with belief and unbelief and that we would come to the place of trusting in him even though we cannot see him. So the Jewish leaders have petitioned him in unbelief. Tell us who you are. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now the truth is, Jesus has said enough publicly for people who are listening and have the spiritual uh, insight to connect what he's saying to all these various Jewish rituals and all those things that they could get who Jesus is. But Jesus has not plainly said, I am the Christ in public. He said that to the woman at the well in John 4 when she said, are you the Christ? And he said, I am speaking to you. He is speaking to you. And he said basically the same thing to the blind man in John 9. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he? You've seen it. It's me. But he hasn't made that plain a statement about his role as the Messiah, as the Christ, in public. And so they're saying, all right, quit beating around the bush. Quit with the analogies. Quit talking about sheep and shepherds and just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And so Jesus gives uh, a typical Jesus-type response where he answers the question, but he doesn't quite answer the question and actually kind of raises some more of his own. 
So Jesus in verse 25 says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. If you've been listening, it's there. You've heard it. I've not been hiding, right? I've told you that I'm the source of living water. I've told you that I'm the bread of life. I've told you that I am the light of the world. I've told you that I am the true shepherd. I've told you that the Father and I are one and working together and that I am from God. I've told you. It's there. You just don't believe. So the issue is not, man, Jesus is just being really, you know, kind of cryptic and too, like, just fuzzy. And maybe he just needs to speak more plainly. That's not the issue. The issue is unbelief. And the same thing is true for us today. God has been pretty clear. God has given us a pretty big book with lots of stories and truths that tell us who he is and how he is related to the world and what he's done to bring us into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ and how we can know him and how we can follow him and how we can have the secure hope of an eternity in his presence. He's told us, he's revealed it to us, but we still... We're just not sure about that. I don't know. Would you please tell us plainly? The issue is not the clarity on Jesus' part. The issue is unbelief in the heart. And so he says to them in verse 25, I've told you and you don't believe. And then he's going to point to his own works, these signs that he's been performing. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. And so remember John's purpose statement in this gospel at the end of the gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, Jesus did many other signs, but these I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you may have life in his name, right? And so the, these miracles of Jesus that John is recording for us are intended to point us toward his identity. They're intended to be markers for us to show us Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the long-awaited redeemer and deliverer of the world. And so you don't stop at a sign and celebrate the sign. You follow where the sign is pointing you to, and you get to your destination. The destination is Jesus. And these miracles are just signs pointing to him. So he points out his signs, the works that I do bear a witness about me, but you don't believe them. My works speak for themselves. They bear witness. And in fact, if you remember uh, the story of John the Baptist, back in, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Uh, but John the Baptist, who was the great forerunner of Christ and the one who announced that Jesus was coming, John has now been imprisoned and uh, he's begun to doubt. He's begun to doubt whether Jesus really is who he claims to be. And so he sends his disciple, uh, one of his disciples, to Jesus. So John is in prison, and he sends a disciple to Jesus. Uh, Listen to this from Matthew 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
So when John sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one, are you the Christ or not? Jesus didn't say, go tell John, yes, I am. That's not what he told him. He said, go and tell them, go and tell John the works that you see me doing. Go and tell them about, go and tell John about the blind that are being, uh, receiving their sight and the lame that are being healed and the dead that are being raised. These are the works that would accompany the Christ, that would accompany the Messiah. And so believe on account of the works. The works speak for themselves. But of course, they don't believe, and Jesus is not surprised by their unbelief. And in fact, he explains their unbelief in verse 26. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And now he's brought back in that metaphor of Jesus as the shepherd and the people of God as the, this flock of sheep that Jesus is responsible for and caring for and protecting. And he says, the reason that you don't believe in me is because you're not one of mine. You're not one of my sheep. Which harkens again to this theme that Jesus has been kind of hitting on throughout John, he, he talked about this in John 6. He talked about it again at the beginning of John chapter 10. This points us to the mysterious divine sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. He says, you don't believe because you're not one of mine. Not the other way around. He doesn't say you're not one of mine because you don't believe. If you would just believe, then you would be one of mine. He says, you don't believe because you don't belong to me. He said earlier in chapter 10, uh, that, the, that the, the sheep will follow the voice of their shepherd. All that the Father has given, all the sheep that the Father has given to me will follow me. They will come to me. They will hear my voice and I will lead them out. Back in John 6, uh, verse 38 and verse 44, he said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And then he said again in John 6, 44, that he would give, excuse me, that the will of God is that of all that the Father gives him, that none would perish, but that he would raise them up on the last day. So there's this reality behind the choosing of people, behind the choices that we make about Jesus. There's this reality behind that of God's sovereign activity from before time even began and even in time to draw and to speak and to woo and to call to his sheep. Now this truth is hard sometimes. It hits us weird. It, it makes us feel a little unsettled because we like to think that we are the kind of commanders of our own destiny and we can do whatever we want and whatever we set our minds to. And this, the truth that Jesus is speaking of here and that he's spoken of elsewhere in the Gospel of John is that we are dead in sin. We are separated from God with no ability to bring ourselves back to life unless God sovereignly works in our hearts in the first place. And that's hard for us, and yet it is true. However, it's not just that, you know, it's true, and I guess I just have to kind of begrudgingly accept it. It really is good news, and it should inform our attitude 
toward unbelief. It should inform how we think and feel about people who do not yet believe the gospel and who have not yet trusted in Christ. For, so, for example, we shouldn't get mad at people who don't believe, people acting out in their sin because they, uh, because they don't know Christ. We shouldn't get frustrated. I keep telling him, and he just keeps arguing and coming up with some new excuse not to, not to believe. We need to be patient with people, and we need to plead with God on their behalf. Because knowing that the Father is sovereign in salvation and that all those who belong to Jesus' fold will come to him, here is what our philosophy should be in evangelizing and reaching out to people trying to share the good news. Our philosophy should be this. Let's be a faithful witness and trust God with the outcome. Be a faithful witness and trust God with the results. Because you can't make it happen. You can't make somebody sign on the dotted line. All right, I've told you all you need to know. All you got to do is just put your name here that says, yep, I'm going to follow Jesus. Boom, another notch on the belt. That's not how this works. God has chosen people, sheep, and he's entrusted them to Jesus. And now he's drawing them. He's drawing his sheep to himself. When Jesus said just a few verses before this, back in verse 16, He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. It's not uncertain in Jesus' mind. It's not a question. It's not a potential. I hope that some of the people that I would like to come will come. Everyone that the Father has given to me is going to come. I will gather them. They will hear my voice. So if the people that we are trying to reach with the gospel are his sheep, they'll hear his voice. That's what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So it takes the saving people is not our responsibility. We can't do it. You can't save anybody. God alone saves. All we can do is our part, which is Be a faithful witness. Speak of Christ. Share the good news. Live as a Christian example to people and trust God with the results. Now here's another reason that the sovereignty of God in salvation is good news, and this is where I want to lean on for just a minute. In verse 28, verse 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friend, the sovereignty of God in salvation is the very basis of your confidence with him. It is the basis of your security. So the the way that people can say things like, once saved, always saved, is this reality right here because it's the work of God from start to finish. God is the one doing all of this. So Jesus says, the sheep that God has entrusted to me, that he has given to me, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. and No one can snatch them from my hand. I think any one of those would have sufficed. Any one of those would have gotten the point across. 
to say, I give my sheep eternal life. Wow, that's forever. That's life. That means you can't die. But then he makes it a little more emphatic by saying, and they will never perish. They're going to have eternal life, and they're never going to perish. Okay, so he really means there's no way that this life is going to stop or that this life is going to be plucked away from them. And then he goes even further and says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So in case you're wondering, well, okay, what maybe he's saying that they only have eternal life and they won't perish if they check off certain boxes or do certain things or whatever. He says, no, 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 no. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They're in my hand. The Father has given them to me, and my job is to make sure that none of them perish, but they get raised up on the last day, to use his own words from John 6. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Any of you watched This Is Us? So there's a storyline in this this show about the Pearson family. There's this storyline focusing on uh, Randall, Pearson, who himself was adopted, he's an African-American, who was adopted by a white family, um, like back in the 70s, and um, so it kind of, the show follows, you know, the, how this unfolds and the, the challenges and the tensions that, that that can create. Now, as an adult, Randall and his wife, Beth, uh, become foster parents uh, to a 12-year-old or so, I think she's about 12, named Deja, and so Deja comes to live in their home to become a part of their family. Uh, they've got two little girls uh, of their own, and so Deja joins the family. And, and the show does a really good job, I think, of kind of pointing out how hard that can be. But, it, but we see over some time that there's, there's trust that begins to form and relationships begin to grow, and Deja really starts to feel like a part of their family, and they really see her as, as one of them. Now, the thing is, Deja's mom is still around, uh, and, and she wants custody. So she's in jail for now because of some drug charges or something like that. Um, But she is very clear that as soon as I get out of here, I'm coming back for my daughter. And, um, of course, this all is portrayed from the vantage point of Randall and his family as they fight for custody of Deja, gradually build trust and affection, always with the constant threat that this could all be taken away at a moment's notice. This could all change if Deja's mom comes calling and they lose their uh, authority, they have no place to, to say, no, she, she stays, no, she's one of us now, she's one of ours. When God the Father chooses you for his own, gives you to his son as a gift, and Jesus calls your name, it's for keeps. There's no threat that someone's going to come and reclaim you. There's no threat that you're going to be removed from the family of God, either because of your own sin or because of uh, some outside force from the world that tries to drag you away or the devil and his temptations. There's nothing that will pull you away from the hand of Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd, the one who has called us and is redeeming us and who is keeping us. We're in his hand forever. Just listen to these words from just a few chapters ago. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When God gives you to Jesus, the shepherd, and when Jesus calls your name, and you come to him in faith, it's for keeps. It doesn't change. It's unmovable. Jesus goes even further if that weren't enough to make you confident that Jesus is not going to let you go. And he tells us, you know, actually my hand is not the only one holding on. I give them eternal life. I'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. However, if this helps just a little bit, verse 29, my father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you're in my hand. You're secure, but you're in my dad's hand too. Remember the old, my dad can beat up your dad playground thing, right? Nobody can say that to Jesus. My dad's greater than all, right? That's what he's saying. I got the strongest dad out there. Nobody can fight him. Nobody can challenge him. Nobody can take anything from him and you are in his hand. You're in my hand and in the Father's hand. Nobody's going to take you away. Nobody is going to snatch you. Nobody can change the eternal bonds of security that are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And the basis of that confidence is in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now that statement is what's going to lead the Jews to pick up stones and try to kill him because they charge him with blasphemy. We'll get there next week. But I and the Father are one. And so he says very plainly here, this unity between God the Father and God the Son, one of these clear echoes in the New Testament about the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is three persons in one being. It boggles the mind, but it is the, the plain reality of God as pre presented in the New Testament. And here's one of those echoes of that, where you have God the Father and the Son, Jesus, who are united in such a degree that the things that the one purposes will be accomplished by the other. And when, when a sheep is in the hand of his shepherd, Jesus, they are wrapped up in the hand of the Father, and their unity together makes this bond unbreakable. You are chosen by the Father, given to the Son to keep, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. To borrow from Paul in Ephesians 1.13, that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And so all three persons of the Trinity, of the triune God, are at work in keeping his people, in choosing and calling and drawing and redeeming and preserving his people until the end. That's why you can have confidence that you can't, quote, lose your salvation, because it's God's. It's God's to give, and it's God's to keep, and it's God's to finally lead you into in the last day. I want to close by reading um, maybe the greatest passage in all of Scripture related to this theme, Romans chapter 8, the last 
eight or so verses give this beautiful picture of his unbreakable love for us and the confidence that we can have as his sheep. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, the ones that God has chosen and gifted to Jesus? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We are secure in his hand because it's his work from start to finish. Are you one of his sheep? Have you believed in the name of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? Jesus says, says it over and over in the Gospel of John. To whoever believes in me, to him I will give eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your only hope and confidence before God now and for eternity, don't miss an opportunity. Don't wait. Trust in him for salvation. Let's pray.